Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 2nd, 2012. Boy, we had some rip-roaring thunderstorms here in central Indiana today. We're supposed to get snow on Sunday. (laughs) Oh, boy. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy, bizarre, silly, um, silly isn't even the right word anymore. Yeah, it's silly makes it sound like, oh, this is just kind of fun, whimsical kind of, this is deadly stuff. Uh, You know, people who are engaging in egregious error and twisting God's word, they're sending people to hell. Um, Yeah, so I I may have to, you know, in the future, strike that word from what I say here. Although, you know, some of the things are silly, though. You know, I think of uh, William Tapley. Man, poor William Tapley. (laughs) Oh, I I I just have you ever wondered uh when it comes to William Tapley as to whether or not there's anybody who actually follows him religiously and thinks that he's the bee's knees that you know that what he's saying is you know true um I just I sometimes <laughs> wonder I mean I know that he has quite a few followers and every time he posts a new video um you know they they you know he gets a pretty good, uh, you know, responses pretty quickly, you know, five, six thousand, you know, people watching those videos pretty within a few days. So my question is of those people viewing his videos, how many of them are going, oh, I, I, I'm hanging on every word that William Tapley says, and I <laughs> just can't wait for the next installment. Now, personally, I can't wait for the next installments either, you know. Because I got a radio program to produce, but <laughs> I just, yeah, anyway, I'm just thinking out loud here, just thinking out loud. Okay, so here's the deal. As we're, as I was getting ready to go on the air and record today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, you know, kind of a last second news story uh, came across uh, The Wire, and uh, Rick Warren has finally publicly clarified uh, his position regarding the whole uh, Orange County Register story. Now, if you remember back, 
Monday. We talked about this because the Orange County Register story had broken over the weekend, and I had contacted both Rick Warren and uh, Jim Hinch, the uh, the author of the Orange County Register story, and it was clear that uh, Jim Hinch had drawn some conclusions that nobody at Saddleback had actually said um, based upon the vague language of the Kingsway document that was put together by Abraham Muhlenberg, uh, the interfaith pastor at Saddleback and, uh, and Jihad Turk of, uh, from a mosque, a Muslim mosque in uh, Los Angeles. And so he had come to the conclusion that that meant that Christian, you know, that the, the theological common ground that was part of this uh, King's Way initiative uh, that Saddleback had been engaging in, uh, that the conclusion was that um, Christians and Muslims were worshiping the same God. And, um, you know, in, in my private email exchange with Rick Warren, I had admonished him on Monday morning. He needs to, you know, clarify this in his own words, and he needs to do it quickly. And midweek, I was on the uh, Standing for the Truth radio program with Amy Spreeman and uh and you know and was bemoaning the fact you know there on leap day that, that we still had not heard anything from Rick Warren up to that point in his own words you know, uh, clarifying uh, you know the errors that were in that uh story. Well today here it's Friday afternoon and you know mid afternoon Ed Stetzer on his blog at you know at Lifeway uh, posted uh, basically forward along forwarded along an interview uh, a ver- you know written a, ver- a written version of it a written version of an interview that Saddleback had put out and he posted on his blog for clarification and what's really interesting is how the story plays out I I think there's some there I think there's kind of a sub story to the story here and so we're going to take a look at that today. Uh, in fact, we're going to do that very shortly here. Uh, after that, uh, let's see here. What I, what else have I got on deck here? Yesterday, I, you know, because because of those uh, the the Chrislam the musical that uh, I played yesterday. Oh man, from Northwood Church in Keller, Texas, and that uh, Ave Maria with uh, Ahula Akbar being played in the background. Now, if folks, there are some there are some people out there who are truly trying to syncretize. Um, Islam and Christianity, and this is all part of the theological downgrade that's uh, occurring in evangelicalism. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if if your biblical knowledge, I mean, let me just put it this way, okay? And I'm going to say this in the most uncharitable way I know how. <laughs> it's not like I'm trying to be uncharitable, but I'm just I, I'm kind of thinking ahead, looking at what I want to say in my mind. Is there a charitable way to say this? No, there isn't. I think it needs to be said in a way that's just kind of blunt and to the point. So here's the deal. If you are, are somebody who attends regularly a mega church that uh, has their sermons reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith, and the, uh, the, the music that I play prior to it is the standard music that I play for a bad sermon, then chances are your, your understanding of the Bible is vapor thin. It's like wet Kleenex thin. And if, I mean, seriously, I mean, how on earth can you possibly say that you understand sound biblical doctrine when week in and week out, you, all you're given is, you know, a couple of verses ripped out of context in, in, in support of a self-help uh, biblical principle, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, apply these life principles in your life will be better type sermons. You t- it just, yeah, you know, if, if that's your steady diet, I mean, they, how do they say garbage in, garbage out, you know, 
here's another way of putting it, thin, out-of-context Bible verses in, thin, no understanding of what the Bible really is about, out. Yeah, that's how that works. So um, so here's the deal. If you are attending a church where, you know, after you know, after an entire year has gone by, you know, 52 weeks of listening to the sermons, and you've pretty much only have, well, um, come in contact with maybe 150 verses out of context in the 52 weeks, um, you know nothing about what God has said in the scriptures. As a result of it, uh, you are you are easy pickings. You are easy pickings for the devil and his schemes and his false theologies. And as a result of not knowing what the Bible says, I mean, you might think that it's really a Christian endeavor to, you know, that, that loving your Muslim neighbor means that you just basically not quibble about the details of the God they believe in and the God that supposedly is in the Bible, which you know nothing about. But you, you understand what I'm saying. So, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you, you, you're not taught the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. You don't, yeah, yeah, that's just how that works. Um, yeah, garbage in, garbage out. That's why pastors are admonished to preach the word, to preach that which is in accord with sound doctrine, to rightly handle the word of truth, rebuke those who contradict, you know, things like that. Anyway, so, yeah, so, so that's the thing is, is that there are churches out there that, you know, their theological understanding, um, I, you know, they couldn't fill a thimble with it, you know, and it just, you know, that's just plain and simple as a result of it. Like I said, they're slim pickings, not slim pickings, but they're easy pickings for the, uh, uh, for the flaming darts of the evil one. I mean, you know, become battlefield casualties and it, it all in the name of love and, and a loving God promoted well, really bad ideas about God. Anyway, so uh, yesterday when we were talking about Chris Lawn the musical and gave some examples of that, I had uh, teased you with the idea that I was going to be reading a story about uh, the the latest attack by Simka Yakabovich. Um, a lot of people uh, uh, pronounce his name wrong. Uh, it, it it looks like Jakabovici, but that's not <laughs> that's not how it's pronounced. He's a Canadian uh, filmmaker and documentary guy. Uh, and kind of a hack archaeologist is probably the best way of putting it. But uh, it you can tell that we're getting close to Christmas, uh, not Christmas, but Easter, because, uh, well, he's attacking the bodily resurrection of Christ. We're going to be taking a look at that. i got a Trinity Broadcasting news story I want to get to. Uh, Perry Noble. Oh, boy. Um, did, did you <laughs> – bet you all didn't know this. Um, Perry Noble uh, has discovered a secret tithing message encoded in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yeah um the, the how's the uh the famous uh statement go regarding your know, mothers against drunk drivers friends don't like friends drive drunk well he, he, here's a here's just another thing you know a, a way to love your neighbor friends don't let friends go to new spring church it just plain and simple i mean seriously if you could f- find a secret tithing message encoded on the sermon in the sermon on the mount um, this is almost like this gets close to Patricia King ish as far as, as I'm concerned. But so we'll take a look at that. And then if we have time, I've got a, uh, um, a, a postmodern emergent church update. The, uh, the emergent churches, uh, is, well, they've got the band back together and they're putting new stuff out there like you wouldn't believe. So we got that. And then we're going to be listening to a, well, I actually, a sermon that's supposedly about the Garden of Eden story from LCBC. 
Um, I, you know, I decided to not go with the Blessing Zone sermon that I wanted to review yesterday because I thought this one went a little bit better with the, uh, with the rest of the program. So I, I don't know if I'll get to that other one in the next week or so. But anyway, that's going to round out the program. So I think looking at the time in, and what I want to cover, we better dive into the program proper. Um, yeah, I'm just saying, uh, you know, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. So, yeah, you don't want to abuse a good gift that God has given you. Fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience and all of that. But uh, without any further ado, let's dive into this program and get it going. From the Ed Stetzer blog at edstetzer.com, headline reads, Rick Warren interviews interview on Muslims, evangelicals, and missions responding to recent news reports. Now, I got to tell you, I am happy I am I, almost ecstatic, um, very pleased that Rick Warren has personally and publicly and clearly responded to the Orange County Register story that went that was published over the weekend. I I couldn't be more thrilled. So I'm excited to pass this information along to you. That being said, there's a sub story here. There's a sub story here, and I I find myself having to. Um, Hmm. Um, clean up some of the mess of the clarification. Let me explain. Ed Stetzer writes. So this first part is from Ed Stetzer. <clears throat> Once again, watch bloggers are accusing Rick Warren of heresy. Why? Because Warren explains a secular Orange County newspaper got something wrong about a religious issue. Some of the usual bloggers have done their usual job. So there you go, yeah. So you you bloggers out there, now I blog, okay, I do, um, but I I mostly do radio now. I don't have as much time to write. But uh, here's the deal: I I would like to point out something, and that is the fact that even though I'm a blogger, and I understand that bloggers are maternal basement living opinion givers, and that they basically spend their entire day in their mom's basement, uh, you know, uh, on a bean bag, eating Cheetos and. And doing you know strange things, uh, I, I get all that. You know, I, I mean, you know, they're mostly subhuman. I get it. You know, um, yeah, I, you know, that's me. I'm, you know, I'm a blogger, so I'm mostly subhuman. Keep in mind, this is on the <clears throat> Ed Stetzer blog. Anyway, um, however, due to the nature of the story, some mainstream news organizations and bloggers, without the constant anti-Warren agenda, were asking questions and wondering what was going on. Uh, I I was, so I emailed Rick and I asked him. Rick sent me this interview where he seeks to bring clarification. He gave me permission to share it here at the blog. I think it will be helpful. So now it's so so the watch bloggers were all over this like white on rice. Got it. Okay. However, because of the nature of the story and the fact that, well, a reputable news outlet like the Orange County Register was is what who published this, other people were asking questions too. So um, furthermore, it's important to note that the secular newspapers do not get the nuance we often use in evangelical Christianity. However, when we read well-known Christian leaders quoted as saying something in a local paper that seems out of character or contrary to the views over the many decades, perhaps we might give that person the benefit of the doubt. I am sure those who quoted the OC Register will also quote this to clear up any confusion. So here is the interview. So uh, Warren forwarded this to Stetzer. Stetzer posted it on his blog. And I, for one, I got to tell you, I am very, very happy that Rick Warren has 
publicly and directly and clearly addressed this issue. So that being the case, the, 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 the interview goes like this. Question, do people of other religions worship the same God as Christians? Warren, of course not. Christians have a view of God that is unique. We believe Jesus is God. We believe God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three separate gods, but one God. No other faith believes Jesus is God. My God is Jesus. The belief in God as a trinity is the foundational difference between Christians and everyone else. There are 2.1 billion people who call themselves Christians, and they all have the doctrine of the Trinity in common. Hindus, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Unitarians, and everyone else do not accept what Jesus taught about the Trinity. Good, good statement. Next question. A recent newspaper article claimed you believe Christians and Muslims worship the same God, that you are, quote, in partnership with a mosque, and that you both agree to not evangelize each other. You immediately posted a brief refutation online. Can you expand on that? Sure. All three of those statements are flat out wrong. Those statements were made by a reporter, not by me. I did not say them. I do not believe them. I completely disagree with them, and no one even talked to me about that article. So let me address each one individually. First, as I've already said, Christians have a fundamentally different view of God than Muslims. We worship Jesus as God. Muslims don't. Our God is Jesus, not Allah. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Second, while we urge our members to build friendships with everyone in our community, including Muslims and other faiths, love your neighbor as yourself, our church has never had any partnership with a mosque. Friendship and partnership are two very different levels of commitment. Some of our members have hosted a Bible study with Muslim friends, which I applaud, but I've never been to it. And a Bible study certainly isn't any kind of a partnership or a merger. It's just crazy that a simple Bible study where people explore Scripture with non-Christians would be reported as a partnership, and others would interpret that as a plan for a new compromised religion. Just crazy. Now, I got to I gotta say something here, and that is this, is that I don't think this is an accurate description of what it is that um, Jim Hinch was reporting on. In particular, Jim Hinch was talking about a not a Bible study, not a small group study, but a, an event that took place at Saddleback Church in December of last year. So, you know, about three and, you know, three months, three and a half months ago. Okay. You know, you know, well, actually about three months ago. And at that event, there were 300 people in attendance at Saddleback, Jihad Turk and Abraham Muhlenberg, who Abraham Muhlenberg works for Saddleback, discussed the King's Way document. Okay. And Jim Hinch, by the way, has a copy of the King's Way document. So here's the problem I have, okay? I, On the one hand, I am thrilled that Rick Warren has publicly and clearly and unambiguously made it clear that Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. Amen. And like I said on Monday, there's a lot of things Rick Warren is, okay, but uh, the one thing I know about Warren is he's a Trinitarian, okay? 
you understand what I'm saying. There's, I mean, there's a lot of valid critiques that we can offer regarding Rick Warren and the way he twists the Bible. Uh, the fact that he works, his methodologies work from a Pelagian assumption. Uh, there's all kinds of things that we can offer as far as valid substantive critique of, of Rick Warren and the things he does. But uh, that being the case, you know, I'd, I've met the man. I've talked with the man. I, t- you know, what we we had an email exchange on Monday. He's not somebody who believes in Chrislam, okay? He's not. But the th- problem is, is that the vagaries of the document that were put out, when interpreted by the everyday guy on the street, who Jim Hinch really kind of represents. He Jim Hinch is not a theologian. He's your everyday journalist by vocation. And after reading the document, the conclusion he came to was, okay, these guys are building theological common ground with Muslims, and it sounds like to me they're saying they worship the same God. That wasn't the result of a Bible study. That was a result of an interfaith document that was co-authored by a, a saddleback pastor. So here's the problem that I'm having, okay? If you want to read this, by the way, it's the lead story at Ed Stetzer's blog, and today is uh, you know is uh, Friday, February second, so it should be easy to find. But uh, he, here's he, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you look at how this story is being countered by Rick Warren, there's some things that I say are that are true, and some things that I think may not be an accurate representation of what really went down. I think it's fair to say that Saddleback is is partly responsible for the confusion. And even though Rick Warren wasn't interviewed for the story, Jim Hinch says in his article, and I confirmed this with him privately, he attempted to speak with Rick Warren, but he was told by Saddleback folks that he wasn't that Warren wasn't available for an interview. It's not that he didn't try. So he talked with Tom Holliday at Saddleback and worked through all of this stuff and shared with him his conclusions and shared with him what he you know what he was saying and according to Jim Hinch Holiday was on board with the things that uh, that Hinch was saying regard you know as far as confirming things that he was you, know, that you understand what I'm saying so again the it's kind of weird to me kind of weird to me and here's the problem here's the problem I think somebody who is fair, open-minded, and willing to look at the facts objectively would come to the conclusion that Saddleback is in part responsible for the confusion uh, and the conclusions that Jim Hinch came to. And throwing him under the bus as a secular newspaper guy and throwing watch bloggers under the bus... I I just it's I don't think that that's fair or even accurate to you know to be doing, and that's the sub story to this whole thing. So again, you know you you kind of have to read this this explanation and understand that unfortunately there's some bones that have to be spit here because um, Rick Warren is saying that that Jim Hinch came to this conclusion and that people were coming because of a Bible study. No 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 no. They came to this conclusion because of an interfaith document authored, co-authored by a Muslim and the interfaith pastor at Saddleback, Abraham Muhlenberg. 
So uh, yeah, on the one hand, I'm very thrilled, very thrilled that Rick Warren has clearly and unambiguously made, you know, stated that it, Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. Amen. I'm glad he did it. He needed to do it. I wish he'd done it on Monday. It would have it would have really helped uh, that you know had he done it on Monday. That being the case, um, there's some things that are in that are he's saying in this explanation that um, I, I I would like to th- you know blow a whistle, throw a flag, and and do what they do in the NFL. Let's go to the tape and let's review the video footage. Let's review the facts on this to see if uh, the way this document is is spinning the story is in accord with what really happened. Because, hang on, yeah, yeah, I'm smelling political spin here. Yeah, just, I'm, I'm familiar with that, but, you know, I'm that's what I'm smelling here with the story. So, anyway, that's my take on it. But, uh, again, I'm very, very thrilled that Rick Warren has publicly, clearly, and unambiguously stated that Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. Let's uh, let's pray that some of the other folks in the seeker-driven movement get the message here and clean up their act, because there are people who are promoting Chrislam, and uh, we've got a we got a serious problem with that. And uh, I'm glad to see that uh, Rick Warren has come down on the side of Trinitarian uh, theology and the incarnate God Jesus Christ. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, 
He's righteous and he's wrathful all at the same time. Okay then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your theology is really vague, don't be surprised if people end up not understanding what it is that you believe. Just saying. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. It really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long, long as, as I, I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. 
And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flair. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a Yeah, That's right. That's our uh, Perry Noble update music. Yeah. Oh, man. I picked that that music for Perry a long time ago, and it's frightening to me how, how it's more and more fitting the case. Now, if you ha- we're going to start off in our Bibles. If you have your Bible, I need you to flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. And we're going to do a little bit of reading from the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to read all of it. We're just going to do a little bit of reading from the Sermon on the Mount to uh, you know, make sure that we understand what we're you know what it is that he's doing here. So uh, Matthew chapter six, um, we're going to start at verse twenty-five. Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-five. Now here's what I want you to see if you can find. Now Perry Noble, as you're about to hear believes and taught recently at the stage at uh, New Spring in Anderson, South Carolina, that there is a secret tithing message encoded somewhere in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to see if when we read this, I'm going because I know the verse that he's going to be looking at, okay? The verse he's going to specifically be talking about is verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I want to do what we're what you're supposed to do with every teacher, including me. Put the verses back in context to see if that's what the passage is really saying. So if we put this back in context, is there a tithing message or theme that Jesus was really talking about and implying here in this passage? Well, let's take a look. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his lifespan? Hmm, okay, great question. So so verse 25 is talking about being anxious, or you can say worrying, okay? So why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hmm. Okay. Um. Did you? Do you? When I read that, did you guys catch any secret tithing messages in there? I didn't see one either. Um. By the way, uh, see uh, verse thirty-three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Notice that Jesus here is not beating them on the head for being disobedient. He's rebuking them for their lack of faith, not trusting in the goodness and graciousness of God, right? Look at God. Look, God takes care of sparrows. God takes care of the grass of the field. How much more of value are are you to God than they are, right? Oh, you of little faith. But seek first the kingdom of God and whose righteousness? Yours? No. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So when we're talking about the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, the righteousness of God, that is what helps us to understand what's going on in verse 33, the righteousness of God is what? Well, let me give you a good cross-reference. Philippians chapter 3, okay? Watch what the Apostle Paul says here about those who are trying to establish their own righteousness through their good works, through their law-keeping, as opposed to those who are seeking after or believe in and trust in the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, Look out for those dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But watch this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Gain as far as self-righteousness keeping the law. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, his all of his good works. He counts them as, well, rubbish is the euphemism in the English, but it's a lot stronger in the Greek. I count all of those good works as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So when we use the, the, the simple hermeneutical principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture when it's talking about the same thing, okay, Jesus here is rebuking the, his hearers on, on, this, on the Sermon on the Mount regarding the fact that they didn't have faith. And he tells them to trust God and to seek him and his, not yours, not mine, not theirs, his righteousness. And here Paul talks about the fact that seeking the righteousness of God is trusting in the righteousness of God that is imputed to you as a gift. Not trusting in your own good works, but counting your good works as rubbish so that you may be found in Christ, 
not having a righteousness of your own, but the righteousness of God that is given to you by faith. Now keep in mind, the great exchange is this. Your sins were imputed to Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. He suffered as the sinner. Okay, And when you are brought to repentance and faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness is given to you as if you actually lived it. So if you are in Christ, you are seen by God as righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of God, the diakasune tu theu. Okay? So let's go back now to Matthew chapter 6, and let's take a listen to Perry Noble and see if we can figure out how on earth he came to the conclusion that Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is somehow about tithing. Well, hang on to your hats. Here we go. It's the same thing I would tell people today that are having trouble putting God in your finances. First in your finances, listen to me. Close your eyes and run. Because he's never let anybody down. That's why I said this in Matthew 6.33. Watch this. Seek. What's that next word say? No, no, no. What's that next word say? First. Now, let me tell you something about that word first. Because Jesus was Jewish, and Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience. So when Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience, he was relating to them. This is the Sermon on the Mount. If you're going to Israel with us, we're actually going to be at this location where Jesus taught this sermon. It's amazing. Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking to a Jewish audience. Now, when he said things, you automatically got to take your mind back to the Old Testament, which some people have told me, I don't read the Old Testament. It's there for a reason. And so we've got to take our mind back to the Old Testament, specifically the Torah, because most, especially most Jewish men had the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, memorized. And so anytime Jesus said something, we've got to go back and go, does this, does this mean anything in the Old Testament? Because Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And so when he says, seek first, you've got to take your mind back to the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Specifically, it is clear in those five chapters of Scripture that God comes first in the finances. And by the way, this was not the result of law. It was Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, 400 years before the law. It was um, Jacob. By the way, the, the word for what he's doing here is eisegesis, Okay. And not only that, he's smuggling in, and here, here's how this is happening. Just because Jesus said the word first does not, un, does not mean that he was talking about the tithe. Okay. By pausing there and saying, Oh, see the first, he used the word first. And listen, the question is, what did he, what does the word first mean in context? Now, here's the deal. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He did not say, seek to establish your own righteousness or seek first the kingdom of God by tithing. He's, if that, in fact, that would be in direct contradiction. And when you put it back in context, it doesn't make any sense. So what he's trying to do is smuggle into the word first, the word tithing, as if somehow that's what Jesus was referring to, but it's not because Jesus was referring to seeking first the righteousness of God. Yeah, not tithing. If Jesus meant tithing, he would have said it. In other words, if you're going to take Perry Noble's smuggling 
of the tithing concept by packing it in, you know, hiding it in the word first. Let's put it back in context. Uh, you know, let, let me back this up. Uh, and why are you so anxious about your clothing? Verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like any one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive tomorrow and is tomorrow uh, is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But tithe first, give God the first 10% of your money, and then all these things will be added to you. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. Uh, you know, this, um, I do detect a bad hermeneutic here. Weird that it seems like there's a lot of uh, video lately of Perry Noble continually talking about money. In Genesis 28, 300 years before the law, it predates law, and it's past the law. And so when, when he says, seek first, this is not a t-shirt verse. This is, he's specifically talking about our finances. He's saying, seek first. Put God first. The people that say tithing does not exist in the Old Testament simply are in the New Testament. We simply misunderstand this verse. Uh, yeah, uh, you didn't properly handle that verse. <sighs> Absolutely bizarre so there you go who knew i mean i mean biblical scholars for millennia now uh literally christian pastors scholars church fathers i mean the whole i mean the entire history of the christian church has been marred for two thousand years because nobody until perry noble has come up with the idea that seek first the kingdom of god was really actually about tithing but thanks thank you perry noble for discovering this hidden truth for us and finally correcting the record for because 2,000 years, people in Christianity have gotten this one wrong. Oh, man. Anyway, moving along. Um, from the Christian Post, headline reads, New archaeological discovery questions Jesus' bodily resurrection. Scientists say bones discovered in tomb supported by biblical accounts. Uh-huh. This is the latest effort by Simka Yakubovich in the Discovery Channel. We must be getting close to Easter because when Easter comes around or when Lent comes around, uh, the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and, you know, those types of channels have got to take a swipe at Jesus and got to, you got to keep Jesus dead in the tomb, you know? And so this is becoming like an annual thing. It's, it's, it's like baseball season, you know? Which, by the way, I'm really looking forward to. Although I'm kind of hoping that the Dodgers do better this year than they did last year, but. Not holding on to too much hope there. Anyway, a headline reads, new, uh, Dateline New York, a, a new archaeological discovery on a Jerusalem site is causing controversy as it revives the debate over the Jesus tomb. Oh, man. The Jesus tomb has been soundly, soundly put to sleep. It, you know, it, this, <laughs> there, I mean, they had their, their own scholars and, you know, from you know, the 2000 and was a seven documentary about the Jesus tomb that Simka Yakubovich, I mean, some of their own scholars jumped ship on this because it was so bad. I mean, the scholarship was just so schlocky. Anyway, so this new thing has uh, revived the debate over the Jesus tomb and presents what scientists claim is proof that a burial box was found containing the remains of Jesus. 
Uh huh. And possibly his family, a direct contradiction to the belief in Christ's bodily resurrection. Please tell us the evidence for this. By the way, Simica Yakubovich, you know, the guy is a crackpot. Okay. The absolute crackpot. And, you know, it, it does not take much pushing for you to blow over the house of cards that he's come up with over the years. Just, it's not difficult to do. But you got to give him this much credit. He understands that uh, if the bones of Jesus can be found and they can prove it, Christianity falls. Absolutely, he's right about that. Problem is his evidence is it's like not evidence. Okay, the team of scientists led by biblical scholar James Tabor and documentary filmmaker Simka Yakubovich, co-authors of the newly released book The Jesus Discovery, the new archaeological find that reveals the birth of Christianity. Uh, claim that the newly explored sealed tomb dating to the first century CE or you know, AD is proof that the nearby tomb discovered a year earlier contains Jesus's remains. Oh, really? What's the proof? <clears throat> so Tabor and Yakubovich believe the new tomb, which they explored in 2010 with a robotic camera, is closely tied to another nearby tomb referred to as the Jesus family tomb or the garden tomb. The tomb was first uncovered by construction work in 1981, but re but religious reasons did not allow exploration. In a 2007 documentary, Yakubovich claimed that the Jesus family tomb ossuaries had once contained the remains of Jesus and his family. And like I said, I don't know any reputable archaeologists and, and, you know, scholars who take this seriously. When you, when you, I mean, even I was able to kind of debunk this thing back in 2007 when it came out. I mean, it, it's not hard to do. Anyway. Uh, the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, the, the, the metaphor that you were using is, is that, oh, look, we found a bone box with the name of, of, uh, of Joseph and, and, uh, Yeshua, son of Joseph and, and, and another one that had the word Miriam on it and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, they were likening it to, you know, finding something that had to do with the Beatles. The problem was, is that when you start pushing on it, you find out, well, if you were to say that you found something that had to do with the Beatles, like 2000 years from now, that was directly tied to them, you wouldn't be able to tie it back to them for sure without the word Ringo. Yeah. There, there was some, uh, anyway, um, Lee Strobel actually, I think, does a decent job on this in one of his books. I have to look up the, you know, the information on that. Maybe pass that along. Anyway, yeah, nobody takes this Jesus family tomb business from 2007 seriously, except for Yakubovich. Anyway, in two, a 2007 documentary, Yakubovich claimed that the Jesus family tomb ossuaries had once contained the remains of Jesus and his family. The tomb contains ossuaries with the inscriptions containing the names Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and they were close to each other. That is likely. A little likely to be coincidental, and scientists said even though at the time some scholars dismissed these claims, saying the names were were uh, were mere coincidence. Dr. Ben Worthington, New Testament professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, had noted at the release of the 2007 documentary that the names etched on the ossuaries are extremely commonplace. For example, the name Mary was the most popular female name during that time and place, while the name Jesus was popular in the first century and appeared in 98 other tombs and on 21 other ossuaries. Nevertheless, the scientists believe that the Jesus family tomb is located on the land that once belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, who, according to scriptures, had Christ's body placed in his own tomb. Now the newly explored tomb located only 200 feet from the Jesus family tomb 
uh, uh, ups the likelihood that the theory is correct, Tabor told the Christian Post. The tomb contains several ossuaries that have images and inscriptions related to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Christianity and what the authors suggest is the first image of a Christian cross. During a Tuesday press conference in New York at Discovery Times Square, the authors pointed to inscriptions on the bone boxes as evidence. One of them carries the sign of a fish, which scientists interpret as a reference to the Old Testament prophet Jonah and associated with Jesus' death and burial. The same box shows an inscription, scientists say, suggests resurrection and what looks like a sign of the cross. Quote, whether it's a Christian cross or not, normally if you find a cross like creation on an ossuary, most scholars would say, well, it's not necessarily a cross. Uh, it could represent a gate or a doorway, something like that. But with the Jonah image, I think it's more of a likelihood for it to be a cross, Tabor told the Christian Post. The sign of Jonah makes the discovery easier to interpret, he claims, because Jesus is quoted as saying in Matthew 12, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Everything was done properly, scientifically, Tabor insisted Tuesday at Tuesday's press conference at Discovery Times Square. So let me see if I got this straight. Simka Yakubovich is claiming he's found the bones of Jesus because he found an ossuary. An ossuary is a bone box. He found an, a first-century ossuary with a fish on it. And what may be a cross, it's hard to tell if it's really a cross or not because it's actually symmetrical. It could be a window or a gate or something like that. But he says it's a cross. So, in other words, this has to be Jesus because it has a fish on it. And if you look at the, you know, the, the fish symbol that's on this bone box, it looks like, um, there's a human being, being spit out of the mouth of the fish, you know, kind of implying, you know, you know, Jonah being vomited. And so because Jesus talks about how just like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. That kind of, you know, that, that, that's the symbol. So, ta-da, this is Jesus. Really? Uh-huh. Sounds like a fish story to me. Mm. You know what I think the the uh, real likely story is here? He's found the bone box of a first century Christian who lived in Jerusalem. Plain and simple. It's going to take a lot more than a fish symbol to prove that he's found the bones of Jesus. But you got, you know, Simka Yakubovich. I mean, this is a guy who tenaciously goes after his story. And if he doesn't find the bones of Jesus before he dies, I mean, I, I think he's going to feel like his entire life work was for naught. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, all right, let's take a look at our uh, time here. Yeah, real quick, let's talk about the Trinity Broadcasting story, and then we'll go to our sermon review. Uh, also from the Christian Post, Aaron Sun writes, uh, the headline reads, Trinity Broadcasting Network sued again by family member. Uh, the leaders behind the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the world's largest faith channel, are coming under scrutiny once again by another member of the Crouch family. Joseph McVeigh, 
uncle to Brittany Copper and granddaughter of TBN founder Paul and Jan Crouch, filed a lawsuit against the Trinity Christian Center of Santa Ana, its affiliates, and TBN lawyers at the Orange County Superior Court. He claimed TBN was maliciously targeting him as part of a campaign of retaliation against Copper and anyone related to her for her recent exposure of unlawful financial schemes occurring among the network's top executives and directors as reported by the Courthouse News Service. When Copper, the former director of finance and human resources, was appointed as the company's chief financial executive, she discovered that attorneys were illegally distributing more than $50 million for luxury goods such as jets, estates, and vehicles to company directors. Unwilling to keep quiet over the cover-up, uh, the law, unlawful activity, she reported the incident and was subsequently fired, allegedly threatened with physical and lethal violence and betrayed by her attorneys, Davert and Lowe. McVeigh claimed that in order to pressure Copper to remain silent about the network's financial affairs, her attorneys sued her, her husband, and her relatives as well. Though Copper's uncle had never worked for Trinity or any of its affiliated companies, he was falsely and maliciously sued on contracts that the defendants themselves later admitted did not exist. So, yeah, things are kind of getting a little interesting over there at uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network. Boy, I sure do pray that uh, these uh, lawsuits actually go to court, and I hope that this this financial mm, stuff maybe uh, per- percolates and bubbles up to the surface so that the world can see what's really going on at TBN because they sure do seem to be about money, don't they? Sow a seed, $1,000 seed, and God will bless you. You know, write the check and the blessings will come, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's false theology for sure. It, you know, Trinity Broadcasting Network. Kind of odd that um, T.D. Jakes is a regular there, don't you think? Anyway, all right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review coming up. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via LCBC, which stands for Lives Changed by Christ, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, David Ashcraft presiding. This is from their story sermon series, and the name of the sermon itself is The Story Begins. Supposedly, this is a sermon that has something to do with man's creation and fall into sin. Which, by the way, it's vital that you get this right. Why? Because this sets up the whole gospel. You don't understand the gospel unless you properly understand this story. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen. Now, I've purposely not listened to the end of the sermon. I don't know where it's going to end. I did that on purpose because I'm holding out hope, crossing my fingers, you know, <laughs> knocking on wood. I know that sounds just stupid, superstitious. But anyway, I'm hoping that he's going to land on his feet. But I got to tell you, what I've heard so far, I've heard maybe about 55, 60% of the sermon. I'm not sure if he's going to make it to the gospel correctly. And the reason why is because he's, well, not use, he's not telling the story on the story's own terms, using the story's own language, which kind of is a way of messing up the story. So anyway, without any further ado, here is the sermon entitled, The Story Begins from the Story Sermon Series. Here is David Ashcraft of LCBC. Here we go. Almost every story you'll ever hear begins with Once Upon a Time. When I would tell my kids stories when they were little, my four boys, it would always begin with, if it's a fairy tale, once upon a time in a great land far away, there was a castle with a wicked witch in it. Or if I would tell the guys a fantasy story about them, it would say, once upon a time, there was a land called Wondra, and they had four knights named Joshua, Joel, Caleb, and Seth on great adventures in that land. If I would tell them stories about them, or stories about our family, or our history, or Lynn and I, it would usually begin with something like, well, once upon a time, I met you when you were born. It was an amazing day. Or, I'll never forget, in Valentine's Day, I'll never forget the first time I saw your mother. I just went, wow, once upon a time. Every story 
that we've ever had, every story we've ever heard, every story we've ever lived, every story we've ever been part of can begin with once upon a time, every single one except one. We're going to look at that story in just a minute. Now, in order to understand that, I want to give you some context of what David talked about last week. He talked about the fact that the God of the universe is revealing his story to us. Matter of fact, one of the ways God reveals himself is through stories. There's a variety of ways God can reveal himself, many ways, but one of them is through stories. His story is what we call the upper story. It's the big story. It it starts at a beginning place and it goes on, but actually his story actually started before the beginning and it goes on. And his story, especially his story regarding us, is about relationships. His story is the big picture. You can see it all. It's not like he's flying over our stories and not paying attention. He's very involved with ours. Our stories are actually called the lower story. Now, I want to point something out here. He's not telling the story. He's talking about the story and not even talking about the story on the story's own terms. The upper story? Um, okay, what are you talking about? I'm confused now. Story. Here's the upper story. Here's the lower story. We each live individual moments. Some of our stories go for our whole life, and some of our stories are just for brief moments where we have certain adventures, but we all have lower stories. It's interesting that every one of those stories that are lower stories, from the Bible, from your life, from history, from any experience you've had, begin with once upon a time, except this story. This story is the beginning of man where God doesn't start with once upon a time because it's not a sequence and then here's the moment. It's actually where it starts. He starts with the phrase, in the beginning. I want you to take your Bibles and look at the beginning. It's actually the very beginning of of, uh, the Word of God. It's from the book called Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. It's actually on page 3, even though if you look at page 3 at the table uh, at, at your um, Bible right there at your seat. It won't have the page number, but it's really page three. We're going to look at actually page three, four, and five as we look at Genesis one, two, and three. I want you to turn there for a second, but understand this about your God. See, while he reveals himself, one of the ways is through stories. His story, the upper story, has a variety of themes, and one of them is involving the fullness of grace. One of them is just full of grace. Now, I want to define for you what I mean by grace when I say that. Grace is a gift. Grace is what you receive that you didn't necessarily deserve. It's that surprise thing. Now, I understand that Tuesday is Valentine's Day. Gentlemen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> grace here. It's this kind of foreign to be talking about grace in this context. Um, little weird. And this is not a test. Don't flunk this one, okay? It's really, really big, all right? Um, and what we do is we give a gift. But you know what's on Tuesday or somewhere in the week around it, we're sort of expecting something. Grace is actually a gift that doesn't necessarily come that's expected, deserved, earned, or anything else. It's just a gift. But it actually, we're going to define it as a gift of freedom because we're actually going to look at grace before it was, quote, necessary for grace to be prevalent. So we're going to redefine grace as a gift of freedom? Why did you you just tell the story? Because God, 
works completely and fully in the area of grace. So what I want us to think about is this. I want us to think about who he is and who we are and the gift of freedom. What God wants to do is let you live life full, let you live life completely. So when he begins... So what God wants to do is for you to live life full. Mm-hmm. Why don't you, you know, if you were just read the story, it doesn't say that. Don't you think you should just t- read the story and let the story tell you the story? Ends the story in the beginning. It's going to be very significant to reveal to us about his grace. In fact, we see his grace in creation. We see his grace in how he created the world. It's found right there in, on page three, chapter one, Genesis. Starts with verse one. In the beginning, not once upon a time, actually in the beginning. This is where it starts, history of mankind. And day one, he'll do several things. On day one, he'll create the universe. On day one, he'll create the globe we call earth. And on day one, he'll create light and separate it from the darkness. So you know, God's already been on the exist- in existence forever before this moment. The in the beginning is our in the beginning. It is not his in the beginning. He's already been around. He's existed in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in relationship. But he doesn't require a universe, and he doesn't require a globe, and he doesn't require light. Yeah, th- that's fine and all, um, but you're not telling the story. It's more like you're philosophizing. He exists forever eternally, going backwards before this moment. And at this moment, he gives light and universe and globe. And you know why he does? Because it's for us. It's for us. It's like he's beginning to build a gift that he's going to give to the one he loves on Valentine's Day. Day two begins in verse six. In verse six, what you find out is that this globe is covered in water completely. The atmosphere and everything right there. At this point, he's preaching about the text, but not preaching the text. Weird. Down to whatever is that globe is completely covered in water. So God divides it, puts some water up in the atmosphere and some down on the globe. And he makes the sky. God doesn't need a sky. He doesn't need blue. He doesn't need air to breathe. He doesn't need water to drink. Yet the the story doesn't really tell us that. Um, Again, you're not telling the story. But on day two, that's what he made. It's the gift of freedom that he's giving us. Um, Where does it say in the story that he's giving us the gift of freedom? Something special for us to live in. Day three begins at verse nine. Day three, he takes a look at this and he goes, okay, what if I take the water and I move it into these basins? And what if I make dry ground? He doesn't need dry ground. He doesn't need any place to walk, but we do. And so he makes the dry ground and he makes the ocean and then he puts vegetation on the dry ground to give us shade and things to eat. He doesn't need to eat. We do. And he says at the end of that day, very good. He says at the end of that day, it's good. Later on, Day six, he'll say, it's very good. And at that moment, when he says it's good, it's because it's good for us. It's his grace. It's his gift, the gift of freedom. Day four begins in verse four. The gift of freedom. How about like the gift of being created? 14. Day four is where he says, let me put 
a light in the sky, and I'll call it a sun, and it'll give warmth to the earth, and I'll reflect its light at nighttime off the moon. And I'll put stars that will speak of who I am, speak of my glory, so that mankind can enjoy the night and the day. Us. And he said, you know, his additions to the story are not helping the story. He said it's good. Day five. He puts fish in the sea and birds in the air. With all the color, with all the difference, with the ability to glide and jump and fly and eat the fish. He does all of this for us, and he says it's good. Day six, verse 24. He says, I'll make animals, all kinds of animals, moving about. Moving about because people will enjoy them. You and I will enjoy them. It's his grace. It's his gift. The grace of creation, right? But then he does something else. On day six, he makes mankind. We see his grace in our design. We see his grace in what he did for us. Take a look. At Again, this is like a category error. I... Huh. And by the way, this is not what it means to teach exegetically. He's not really actually teaching the text. If he were, he'd let the story speak for itself. It's like he's trying to add to it. I mean, you can't add to the story. Just tell the story. At chapter 1, so on page 3 of your Bibles in Genesis, take a look at verse 26. And God said... Let us make human beings in our image. Just so you know, God's plural, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make human beings. That's all of us in his image. You want to know how valuable you are? You're made in the image of God, every single one of us. To be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And he basically says, both all that I create, they're equal. They're equal. Together, they will do all this. So all, male, female, right? Look at verse 27, though. He says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's interesting because that makes us unique and special. All of a sudden, God's saying, you know how valuable you are? You're made in my image, all of you. You're equal in your task, in your job. You are special and unique in design. As a matter of fact, the last being made in creation before God at the end of day 26 will declare that it's very good is the female. God built everything to her. It's all to that moment. And he says, very good. All about his grace. All about his gift of freedom. He also says, I have a calling for you. I have something for you to do. I'm not sure. Where in the story does it talk about all about his grace and all about his gift of freedom? I... Again, this just seems like a foreign element just stuck in here. It's going to stick you on the earth. Everything I built here, everything it is, it's this giant gift for you. And in that gift, I want you to discover that it's fun. So listen to what he says. He says, verse 28, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Get together in relationship and make kids. And let those kids inhabit the earth. He says, Fill the earth and govern it. You're sort of in charge out there. It's sort of your world. You guys kind of handle it. As a matter of fact, just so you know, 
The animals don't run it. You do. That says this. Reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals that scurry around the ground. He goes, here's your calling. Got something for you to do. See, we see his, his grace. In his creation, we see his grace in our design. All he wants to do is us to live in freedom. The freedom to be all that he designed us to be. We also see his grace in choice. In choice. Go over to chapter 2. Look at verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. It reads this way. And the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, chapter 1 is sort of like God giving you the upper view of the story. Chapter 2 is still part of the upper story. But he actually sort of comes down a little bit and says, let me tell you a little bit about the hours of day 6. And in it he makes man out of the dust of the ground. He breathes life into him, puts his image in him, and tells him several things, one of which we just read. Just so you know, the woman, who will not be named Eve until later in chapter 3, the woman is not hearing what you just heard. The female doesn't hear it, just Adam. Because Adam has a job to do. It's to protect the heart of the height of creation. She is able to produce life, nurture it. Boy, it's the closest you're going to get to what God does, right? So she needs protection. She needs care for because she's so incredibly valuable. Not just because of that. It's because of the value that God places on all of us. He says to the man, and something you need to know. There's a wall I've put inside the garden. Oh, we, we call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he basically says, you can have it all. Everything. There, 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 there. You can go as far as you want, as long as you want. You can have it all. You can eat of anything except for what's behind the wall. Can't have that. Uh, the story doesn't mention a wall. Now, why he put it there was the wall gives Adam the choice whether or not he wants to love God back, whether he wants to receive the gift. You see, if I give you a gift but you have no choice but to take it, I'll never know whether you want it. You'll never know whether you want it, right? God says, I love you, but if you don't have a chance to decide whether you love him back, what kind of relationship is that? Feels uh, no, uh, there's a whole lot of philosophizing going on here, really. Uh, where are you finding this stuff in the Genesis text? Feels more like slavery. Feels more like we're a puppet and we have to do what he says. And so he says, just so you know, you want to see my grace? I'll take the risk on you. I will give you. If you want to see my grace, I'll put the risk on you? That's not in the text. The gift of freedom. You may choose. You can have anything, just not what's behind the wall. You can't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes it's good just to stop for a minute and think, what would it have been like to live in the grace of God before the wall gets violated? Most of us in this room know that the wall gets violated. Most of us know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit gets eaten of. But what would it be like for that moment before when, when 
The gift of freedom was completely expressed. When total innocence was there, total enjoyment, I choose not to violate the wall. I choose not to disobey. I choose to live in it. And four hours, Eve being created now out of Adam, they live together. And they love together for these hours. And something happens. See, in the in the upper story, we get a glimpse of what the freedom of grace would look like. We get a glimpse of what the freedom of his grace would actually be like. You want to see where it is? It's in the very end of chapter 2. It's in verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but were felt no shame. You want to see the glimpse? It's right there. We can't even say the word naked without feeling funny. He just said naked in church. I'm not even sure you're allowed to do that. Well, I didn't know we were allowed to sing like we just sang anyway, so maybe that's not a problem. But the reality is, man, I didn't know he was allowed to do that. We, we don't handle naked real well. We all kind of feel a little uncomfortable about it because we violate things with it. We, we get concerned, and God says, just so you know, look at the innocence. Look at the freedom. Look at this moment. Take the glimpse and stare at the freedom that this man and woman knew in the gift, the grace of God. That's all the upper story. Um, boy, um, convoluted details. Why didn't you just read it and let the story tell the story? You know, that's what the story's there for. Chapter three, we slide into the lower story. Now, the lower story does not have to be a bad story. I have many parts of my lower story, my story, that are great and awesome, and I have many parts I wish you'd never see. The story in chapter three is a lower story that is not good. There's a great picture going on, but here's just one story that you're going to watch. You ever wonder how it happened? Maybe just hanging around the wall too much. Maybe we're just hanging around that piece of fruit. You see, don't you want to know what's behind the wall? I mean, it's not supposed to be here. Don't you want to know? And God says, you can have everything. Just no, don't go behind there. And we all kind of hang out by the wall. We love it. Adam and Eve find themselves close to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one place that they should not eat. Eve will have never heard from, Adam, uh, from God's lips about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She will have heard it from Adam's lips. And so when the serpent, who is this creature that apparently at that point can walk and talk, is also inhabited by Satan. And he walks up to her in chapter 3, and he goes, So, has God said you can't eat of any tree in the garden? As she's hanging by the wall, checking it out. She goes, No, 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 we're allowed to eat of any tree in the garden. We're just not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree in the middle of the garden, we're not, not allowed to eat that one or even touch it. Nah, God didn't say you can't touch it, but she kind of added that one. Because if we do, she says, and this is right, you'll surely die. You read it. So there she's standing by the wall contemplating what would it be like? What is it that God's keeping out of her life? What does his grace not include? Why isn't God letting me have everything? What does he know that I don't know? Who does he think he is? 
Anyway, Satan says to her, you're not going to die. No, 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 no. You're going to become like God. Lie one, you're not going to die. Yes, she is. Lie two, you're going to become like God. No, she's not. He says, you will know good from evil. That's true. That's true. But this is what you want. She looks at it. Looks pretty appealing. She likes the wisdom that we give her. The tree looks beautiful. The fruit looks good. So she takes it and she eats it. And she gives it to her husband who's standing right there with her. Guess what he's supposed to be doing? What does he know? He knows the truth about the tree, right? He knows what's behind the wall. He gets it. But he just stands there passively. He's supposed to step in between her and Satan and say, yo, knock it off. But he doesn't. He plays with the wall too. And they eat. We discover in the lower story. We discover this amazing moment in the lower story that when grace is rejected, something's going to happen. We've all discovered that here because we've all had moments. Grace rejected. That, that was a covenant broken. That was just flat-out disobedience. Grace rejected? Weird. You know, it's as if he's purposely not telling the story on the story's own terms. Huh. It's with God where we've rejected his grace, his gift of freedom, of abundant life. We've rejected it, and he goes, His gift of freedom of abundant life. Hmm. Why do I think that that's somehow a key to understanding why he's mishandling this text the way he is? Just so you know, something's going to happen. Look at verse 7, chapter 3. Here's what it says. At that moment, their eyes were opened. They both eaten the fruit. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Remember that moment of great innocence? When you get a glimpse of, of the grace of God and the freedom that ensues with it, it's gone. Shame takes over. Something's just changed. Yeah, because they disobeyed God. They're now sinners. It says this. Read on. Verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. What happens when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You hide. What happens when you do it? We feel shame and we hide. That's what you get. Do you, want to, do you want to go ahead and live without God's grace? Live in shame. Live in hiding. Having one that has lived in much shame and much hiding, I get it. It's not what you think it is. It's not what you thought was going to happen. You thought you were going to get one thing, and all you get is shame and hiding. I love my God. I love God so much for the moments like we're about to read. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord God called to man, where are you? You don't think God knew where Adam was? The creator of everything who knows all things? You don't think he knew 
Oh, he knew. Then what's he doing? He wanted Adam to know that Adam was hiding. See, when we hide, we miss out on the grace of God. Uh-huh. It gets so messy here. So, Adam, I want you to know, what are you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm hiding. Look, look at verse 10. He says, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. Okay, you got the shame, right? You already knew it. That's why you sewed the fig leaves together. Now you know you're hiding. Good. I was afraid because I was naked. Has nothing to do with nudity. This has everything to do with loss of innocence, the loss of the freedom of grace. So he says, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And just so you know, I'm madly in love with my God because watch what he's doing. You don't think he knows who told him? You don't think he knows that they ate from the fruit? Of course he does. So what's he doing? Saying, Adam, how do you feel right now? Adam's feeling a little trapped. I want you to feel that trappedness, Adam. I want you to feel what you've limited yourself to do. And when Adam feels trapped, you know what he says? The woman you gave me. That's interesting. Here you sit. And what do you do? You blame. We feel trapped and we blame. The woman you gave me, he, he took down two in one shot here. He's good. You did this, God. Whew. Just took on the grace giver. And then took on her, which probably made a rough night for them that evening. Again, the grace language just seems odd here. You know what? The guys drive me nuts. Um, I want to read the story without his commentary to see if we can figure out what's going on in this story and make heads or tails of it. I don't recall anything about a wall or a, you know, the grace giver or anything like that. It, this is when uh, the, the well, over-contextualization and commentary gets in the way of the plain meaning of the text. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
the earth brought forth vegetation plant yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind god saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day and god said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and god made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and god set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and god saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and god said let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so god created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and god saw that it was good and god blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply in the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and god said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and god made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and god saw that it was good then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and god said behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work from the ground and, and a mist was going up from the land 
and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree in its, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and, on, and it is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of the Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the story. Doesn't say anything about a wall, doesn't say anything about the gift of grace or freedom or anything like that. In fact, it's like almost to purposely miss the point. When you tell the story on the story's terms, just read the story. Let the, the story tells the story itself. Don't talk about the story, tell the story. Don't add stuff and commentary to the story to death. Get rid of all of that. Let's move all of that aside. Let's tell the story. This story is fascinating. This story explains everything. Why is this planet so messed up? Why do people die? Why is there such pain and suffering and toil? Answer, because our first parents rebelled and broke a direct commandment of the Lord God who created them. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, they had freedom. They had perfect freedom, something you and I don't have, because as their descendants were born dead in trespasses and sins. But they had perfect freedom, perfect free will, and they used their free will 
to disobey and rebel against God, and they plunged humanity into the current state that we are in. But did you notice the promise? The promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and in the process would have his heel bruised. The Lord God was merciful to Adam and Eve on that day in promising them a savior. So this story sets the stage for us to follow the scarlet thread of the Savior through the Old Testament to where we finally come to the fulfillment of the one promised by the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the day, the one promised Jesus Christ. And that's important stuff. But if you're going to tell the story, tell the story. Don't talk about the story and say that you're telling the story. That's not telling the story. That's avoiding the story. The story stands all by itself. If you're going to give any commentary, give commentary that helps us understand what the story is saying while you're telling the story. But, I mean, at this point, David Ashcraft, I don't even know what story he's telling, where he's getting the details of the story that he's telling for the story sermon, but he's messing up the story because he's not letting the story tell the story. Does that make any sense? Let's continue. He said there, you, the woman you gave me, right? There's a real man for you. I love men like that. Yeah, it's her fault. I'm weak. I can't help myself. Just, uh... you know what's amazing about this moment? Everything's changed. We're hiding. And we're blaming. I love how God says, you want to play that game? I'll play. Because he says this. He says, the woman you gave me, you gave me the fruit and I ate it. Verse 13, the Lord asked the woman. Okay, I'll see where you're pointing. What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. She's given up on the guy. <laughs> He's done. She's blaming the man, the serpent. This animal taught me into it. The animal that you get to reign over? Yeah, that, that's the one. You know what God does? He turns to the serpent. See, we hide and we blame. We get that because we don't live in the grace of God. We reject it. We reject his love. We reject who he is. We think we know more. We should be God. And he says, so you know, you're not living in my grace. And so to prove it, he says, I told you that if you did this, you would die. Do you ever wonder why Adam didn't eat first? Sometimes I think he says, well, if she doesn't die, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> you know, having lived in jerkhood, I have the right to say this. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's amazing. They didn't die right away, but they did. They already lost their innocence. They already knew they were ashamed and naked and they're hiding. They're trapped and they're blaming I mean, it's just some things. But God then says, let me reveal to you the impact of what you've done. Let me reveal for you the impact of your choice. Let me let you experience it. Let me let you understand it. So we flip over to the next page, page 5 of chapter 3. God says to the serpent, who the woman's pointing at, the serpent. Now understand the serpent's two things. It's Satan 
And it's this creature that apparently is able to walk at this time. Here's what God says. Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. That's you, serpent. That's what you get. But now you, Satan, he says this. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And there's one of the most promising words about who God is in this next sentence. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. You will shoot at him. He will kill you. Servant getting their head struck at, it's over. He says, this will be your death, Lucifer. Then he turns to the woman and he says, you know what was going to be fun for you? Having kids. You know what was going to be fun for you? Having the freedom of multiplying and watching the earth get governed and reigned and cared for and living in innocence with good kids. Eve, you're going to lose that. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Boy, if that is not true. Everything kind of, you see the death of relationship, the death of joy, the death of freedom. It's all coming. You can, you can hide all you want. You can blame all you want, but you know, you know that you've lost something significant. And then he says to Adam, the man, and to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate the, from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch out a living from it. That world that all you had to do was govern it because it was going to just flourish, it's now going to fight you every bit of the way. It's going to die. By the sweat of your brow, you will, eat the, uh, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Oh, yeah, by the way, you were made from dust to dust. You will return. God says, you want to know? Every time you and I choose to walk away from God's grace, we will hide, we will blame, and he will say, do you know what you've done? Every time. It's called conviction. It's awesome. It's awesome because of what happens next. You're going to see him give costly grace here. You're going to see, not only does he say, look what you've done, he'll say, here's what it's cost. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins from, for Adam and his wife. I, I just please, I want you to imagine this moment, okay? When he built this world, it was perfect. When he built this world, it was working. There was no death in this world. I don't get it. I don't know how it works. I don't know how all the animals live together. I don't understand it. But everybody is not, no, nobody's getting killed, right? He walks over to one of the animals he made. I, I have to assume he loved that animal. And he breaks its neck. And he guts it. And he skins it. Something has to die. And he weaves clothing for the man and the woman. Costly grace. He says, you're worth it. You rejected my first grace. I'll give you more. Do you understand who he is? I will come back and give it to you again. It's an amazing description of what Christ will do. The nation of Israel will kill animals to pay for their sin. Okay, now I'm glad he's, he's finally gotten into this theme here that's clearly there in the story, good on him. Until Christ comes, he's the sacrifice lamb. He's the lamb of God. One time he will die on behalf of all of mankind, beat death, rise from the dead, and God will clothe us 
in his righteousness. It's going to cost him his son, but he will pay that price because he so loves us. It's grace. It's desire to see us be free. And he will also rewrite the story. Rewrite the story. Did you ever think about the fact that when he said in the beginning, he wasn't talking about a re-beginning? His intention was this would be it. But we chose not to want him when we were given the choice. And by the way, we continue to do that, right? And then he says this. Go down one more verse. Verse 22, and the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil, referring to the other members of the Trinity. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life? There's another tree in the garden. It's called the tree of life. You live forever if you eat it and eat that. They will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending him out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim, an angel, to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, at first glance, you go, that doesn't seem very nice, but actually it's the rewriting of the story. You know what he's saying? I cannot afford to have them live forever the way they are. All it is is destruction. All it is is hiding and blaming. All of it is is disappointment. All of it is is the loss of innocence. I can't have them do that. So I'll prevent them from living forever in this form and give them a chance at rebirth and eternal life. Wow. This is just hours, weeks into the making of the beginning. And his grace has been shattered and stepped upon and flaunted and not desired. And he turns around and he says, I'll give you more. That's our God. And I know we're sitting here and we're hiding. I know it. I know you've been hiding that affair. You've been hiding that pornography. You've been hiding those lies. You've been hiding- Okay, now this is a good turn. And I, 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 the reason why this is a good term is because at, at turn, he's, he's at this point linking our individual sins that we commit back to our fallen state in the garden. So I, I, I got to give props to uh, David Ashcraft here. Although the early part of this was very convoluted, now he's starting to tease out the proper themes from this story, which I'm very pleased with. I'm very happy to hear him do this. And now he's drawing the connection to sins that we commit, and the connection is being drawn to the garden story. Good on him. Hiding the financial situation you're in, You've been hiding. We hide. You've been hiding the pain. You've been hiding the alcohol. You've been hiding whatever it is we hide. We hide all kinds of stuff. There's no joy, no freedom, no life in hiding. And ever we get trapped in it, we start to blame and push. It's somebody else's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the country's fault. It's God's fault. God says, the only thing standing between you and my grace is you're blaming, you're hiding. All that stands between, the only thing that stands between God and us, it's not him, it's us. Hiding, blaming. What if we were to step out 
and say, God, I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to blame anymore. God, I, I, I'd like to come to you and live. And freedom, the way you designed. I, I'd like to get there, God. Mm, weird elements here. What if you were to come there? What if you were to come there in brokenness? Because that's what it's going to require. Hiding and blaming. You know, why do you hide? You know you've messed up. There's shame. Why do you blame? You know you're trapped. You don't know how to figure it out. And God says, come to me in your brokenness. Come to me and say, God, I need your grace again. Because he did it with Adam and he did it with Eve and he'll do it with you and I. Uh, but he has done it with you and I and Adam and Eve ultimately too on the cross. So what if we come? What if we come in our brokenness and once again see the beauty of his grace? Let's pray. Hmm. Um, okay, so uh, you, you know you know what this is? It's like a soup without enough salt. You, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, uh, you guys that are listening in the audience, I, my wife is just like an amazing cook, okay? And I am the official taste tester in, at the Roseboro Family Compound. And so when my wife is making a soup or a gravy mix or something like that, I'm always the one called upon to test to see if whether there's any salt in there, you know, or enough salt, if the seasoning's right, or the flavor's right. So, you know, you know, I become an expert at this. You know, I, I, how I became an expert, I have no idea. I mean, but <laughs> I can't. Re- <laughs> Somehow, it just came upon me to be able to. Hey, Chris, does this have enough? You know, let me say, ah, a little bit more. In the, yeah, yeah. So this was like a soup, a stew that didn't have the right amount of salt. And what I mean by that is I kind of use, I'm hijacking Jesus's metaphor where it says you are the salt of the earth, but how, how can, you know, salt, it's no good if it loses its saltiness, right? And so I, I think that what makes Christians salty or the salt of the earth is the gospel, is the story of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. You could think of it as the salt it, you know, the salt taste of the blood of Jesus. That might be the right way of putting it. Although, you know, I'm using a soup metaphor, so you don't really want that in your soup. But you, you get what I'm saying here. So, he, I mean, if I were to summarize this, um, convoluted commentary that got in the way of telling the story. Then when he got to the critical part of the story, he made the critical connection between God's grace and our sin, and our sin and how it's connected back to the garden. And and then where he really should have put in a lot of salt, talking about how God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, descended of Adam, born dead in trespasses and sins, with Adam's sin imputed to us as if we'd committed it, that when we were born dead in trespasses and sins, at just the right time, God becomes man in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffers under Pontius Pilate, is crucified, died, and was buried for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you trapped? Are you stuck? Are you ashamed? You ought to be. Repent. 
and be forgiven. Because the promised seed, the one who was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden, the seed of the woman, he has come already, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was born of the seed of the woman, Mary, the virgin, suffered and died and took upon himself, not animals, but he took upon himself your sin and suffered the penalty for it. He was crucified for you, pierced for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities. So repent and be forgiven and live and live. You see, that's what I mean. So it, it there was some weird, in the soup that David Ashcraft made, there was some weird ingredients, distracting ingredients. But at the end of the day, it was missing the most important ingredient of all. Copious amounts of the salty message of Christ and him crucified for our sins. And there's no easier text to preach it from than this one. Sorry, I just, you know, the few few texts lend themselves so easily to this, to the story of the gospel. And yet, it really barely got, you just got a pinch of it. Just a, you know, a hint of salt. And th- I mean, eh, mm, sad, sad. Yeah. All right. Well, we're at the end of another broadcast week. Um, If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. He was the promised seed of the woman right there from Genesis 3. Amen.